This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 88. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 88 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, and Audio Technica. Good to be back with you again for show number 88, creeping ever so close to 100. Got a great guest for you, as usual. Today I have on Mr. Willie Samuels. Willie Samuels is one of the main engineers over at Studio Trilogy in San Francisco, along with his cohorts, Cindy McSherry and Justin Lieberman over there. And Willie stopped by my house to have a discussion about uh, his past, uh, his present, and uh, possibly his future. So uh, we talk at length about uh, all of that. And uh, Willie is a good friend of Chris Dugan's, uh, who's been on the show previously. And uh, they have a shared history together in uh, Newtone Studios. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. So yeah, Willie Samuels coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So let's see. Um want to mention to you, here's something food for thought. You know, in audio, there's many tracks, you know, of audio. You can do, of course, you know, film sound, uh, records, and video game sound, and live sound, and audio restoration. So many different possibilities. Whatever it is you choose, or whatever it is you're doing, and maybe you're in the middle of doing something now that you don't like and you want to change, do it. You know, time is short, life is short, start doing the things that really uh, mean a lot to you. I bring it up because I'm working on a, a project right now, an audio cleanup project, and it's uh, it's pretty heavy, I have to say. The content is very heavy. It's a, a, a situation that uh, involves uh, some undercover recordings, and it's, it's deep, you know? It kind of uh, hits a little close to home as far as uh, I'm concerned. And so it got me thinking. I thought, man, I don't know. This is kind of... Um, really getting at me. This this is kind of really taking a bite out of me. And uh, I have three other mixing projects on the table right now that I'm very relieved to get to when I get to those things. So if you're doing audio cleanup, you know, definitely think about uh, what type of audio cleanup you want to do. Uh, I get great joy out of uh, resuscitating um, recordings of uh, relatives that have long since passed. There's a victory in that. But when it comes to court cases uh, that are intense, yeah, that's something I'm, I'm reconsidering. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It's, um, it's intense. So I will say also that in my conversation coming up here with Willie Samuels, we talk about when you do recording and w- in Willie's case, his commitment to Studio Trilogy as uh, one of three people over there that keep that place running, uh, it comes with long hours. 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. It can be very uh, long and that can take a toll on the family, of course, the time spent with the family. So not to make audio sound treacherous, but, you know, think it through when you make a commitment to doing something, you want to do it really well. Of course, I, I think the, I think all of you think like that, at least that's how I'm thinking, but note that it's probably going to come with some surprises and it may not always go the way you want it to go. So I'm trying not to be vague. I'm trying to just be very specific here to say that have fun doing audio. That's what I'm going to tell you. Have fun doing it. Do it, do a good job, get paid 
enjoy it and really balance it out. If you've got kids, you know, make sure you try to factor that in if at all possible, because that is absolutely important. If you're uh, without kids, well, then make sure it doesn't take a toll on your health. You know, all all good things in uh, moderation, including moderation, of course. <laughs> so uh, that's it. That's my heavy bit for today. Let's talk about some fun stuff. Uh, working class audio hats. Those are on the Facebook page now. If you're in the United States, you can buy them. I haven't figured out a way on Facebook to sell the hats to our international fans. Uh, we'll work around that. We'll figure out a way. But um, there it is. Yeah, if you head on over to the uh, Facebook site for Working Class Audio, you'll see a picture of Mr. Cole Williams posing in a Working Class Audio hat. And uh, you can get yourself one. Very simple. Just uh, you know, add it to the cart, of course. And we have them priced at $16. And, of course, we have shipping in there to uh, cover the cost of the box that we put it in and, of course, the uh, first-class postal service. So, uh, yeah, all in all, it's about 21 uh, 22 I think, depending on tax, uh, tax those in California. So, uh, yeah, head on over there. Get yourself a working-class audio hat. They have a really nice logo on there. It's not screen-printed, actually. It's actually embroidered on there. So it's a really good-looking hat, in my opinion. So I hope uh, those of you that have purchased them and received them, I hope you enjoy them. So let's get to it here with Willie Samuels. Really good conversation. A lot of little snippets in there I think uh, a lot of you will get something out of, especially as it pertains to uh, studio business and how that all runs and uh, doing it on a high level. Yeah, so check it out. Let's, uh, let's dive right into it. Let's, I'll quit talking. Willie Samuels here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, thanks for, for having me. Thanks for coming out to Lafayette. Yeah, oh yeah, long drive. Yeah, long drive, oh, my right? Way to work. Yeah. On your way. <laughs> I kind of know a little bit about your background, and your background has a little bit of an overlap with Chris Dugan to some degree. Definitely. Yeah. So prior to that, give me the synopsis of or summation of you know the recording experience that led you to meeting up with Chris and having your guys' studio together right um i mean yeah i i i probably i met chris in my my early 20s i think um i don't remember the exact year but uh before that i was i started as a teenager i was a drummer and uh playing in local bands i thought you were gonna say you're a drug <laughs> well yeah <laughs> i, I might have been a little bit of that too no um i wasn't uh a drug addict but um i <laughs> yeah i was playing drums and uh i i just kind of recording and and playing music went hand in hand for me almost from the beginning like it just became something i was as soon as i discovered music i was interested in the recording of it um so yeah i playing drums uh i became the guy that got the four track you know oh, in the you band were that guy i was that guy and it started from there and it just it built you know went from the four track to the eight track cassette to where'd the, you grow up in walnut creek oh okay yeah i've lived here my whole life yeah i started recording my band and then started recording friends bands Kind of just slowly started amassing gear in the the cassette recorder days. Got up to a reel to reel machine, or I think I had a Tascam three eighty eight, the little all in one machine. Had it. Oh yeah, yeah. It looked like a giant cassette. It was pretty cool. A track. Yeah. yeah. Which strangely enough continues to fetch a fair amount of money in I, the used market. Yeah, I, I kind of wish I still had mine. Um, not just so I could play back some of the tapes I made on it, but uh, it was a cool machine. Yeah, it sounded good. Yeah, I moved up to a half inch eight track, I think, and. 
just slowly kind of working my way up and up, up the track ladder. Yeah, yeah. And I started uh, traveling to people's, you know, rehearsal spaces, their homes to record them. My parents had this old station wagon, and I would just throw all my gear in there and go to wherever. And uh, it was pretty cool, you know, because I got to record in all these different spaces. But then I eventually wanted a studio, so I got two rooms of a rehearsal space out in Concord. Knocked the wall out between them and built a little control room. And uh, that kind of started it all. That was probably in like 94 or 95 or something. So I did that for a year or so. And I met Chris while I was in that space. And he had this space in Pittsburgh that was much bigger. It's this huge warehouse. And we decided to put all our gear together and move into his big space and build some more rooms in there. And, and for the listeners, we're talking about Chris Dugan. Yeah. He's in a previous episode. So if you haven't heard that, go back and check it out. Right. Chris and I met uh, at Los Medanos College. Um, we were both in the audio program there and ultimately ended up working for the school. We were like the the student teachers or, you know, teacher's assistants or whatever. You were like um, the two smartest guys in the class. I, maybe not the smartest, but we were the two that cared the most, you know, and we already had some experience going into the program. So it was really a great experience for us. And uh, we got keys to the place, which was huge you know that's like the golden ticket for yeah yeah i probably shouldn't say this but you know we were sneaking in there at night and doing sessions in the studio and it it was great you know because it's often you know in those those school settings you don't get a lot of hands-on experience right Um, and us having these jobs we did so i think you're safe unless i call the police (laughs) at this point i don't know (laughs) willie samuels yeah right you're under arrest yeah yeah it was a great experience um what did you find in Chris that made you want to like hang tight with him? Did he seem to possess a certain amount of knowledge or is it just the shared spirit of recording? Yeah, I think it was the, the latter. It, we were just, we clicked, you know, we were good friends from the minute we met. We were both drummers. We both had this huge interest in recording and uh, studios and stuff like that. And we just, we hit it off. I mean, we've, we've owned that studio together for over 20 years now, I think. And I don't think we've ever had an argument. Pretty amazing. You both are very laid back people. Yeah, with each other, we are definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, yeah, we're both pretty mellow and uh, agreeable. I think. What do you think it is about drummers and recording? What, because I'm a drummer, I record. I know many other drummers who record. I have a theory about it that I kind of developed over time. That is, uh, for me, uh, definitely didn't realize until much later in life. But I think it was a way to have some control in the. In the situation and and some you know there's a lot of downtime as a drummer you're sitting around while people are figuring out their parts and writing the songs and i'm not a songwriter i can't help with any of that stuff i don't write lyrics or any of that so uh, for me it was it was my spot in the band you know um and i think that's kind of it was never a, a conscious thing like i said but i think that has something to do with it of it's it's and i think drummers tend to be kind of technical you know, and interested in the technology more than other people, maybe. But I'm sure there's some guitar players and bass players that are going to disagree with me on this. But I think that we have the broad view because everything. Yeah. we're always sitting in the back. Yeah. We're always watching what's going on in front of us. Yeah. Whereas guitar players and singers tend to be at the front of the stage and looking at the audience. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's definitely a big picture thing. So you and Chris have had this space. Uh, tell me the name of the space again. New Tone. New Tone. And you guys have a basically kind of have a couple other people there at this point. Yeah, we, you know, so as, as time went on, Chris and I both kind of went off into different things. Um, I mean, it's still recording, but moved away from that space a little bit. It was, you know, more or less sitting there unused with all this gear in it. 
we we met these two kids, um, Ben and Scott. They were, I think, looking for a space, and they reminded Chris and I of us a lot. Two good friends, you know, and they're probably in their early twenties at that point. And uh, we said, "Hey, why don't you guys move in and use the space? You know, just pay the rent, do whatever you want, really. You know, if, if gear breaks, fix it, or don't, whatever. <laughs> you know, just kind of." Take care of the place as much as you can, and uh, they they jumped on it, of course, and they've been there. I don't know how long now, maybe five or six, seven years, some five years. Well, uh, curious, yeah. why didn't you just let it go? We couldn't let it go. We had this attachment to that place, and I we talked about it a couple times. Um, I think Chris might have been a little more willing to let it go than I was because I was still doing some work out of there at that time. Um, but it just our hearts are in that place. We built it. We built everything in there, you know. And the rent's cheap on it. And we have all this stuff in there. That's like, what would we do with all this gear if we'd sold the place? We're going to sell all the gear off and, you know, get a dumpster and throw all this old stuff away. I don't know. There, there's so much stuff stored in there. It's one of those kind of places that I think it just made sense for us to keep it. And especially once we found people that would pay the rent, it doesn't cost us anything for it to be there. And, you know, it's a nice fallback back plan too. It is. And let's let's kind of move forward because yeah. we may be re Yeah, right. Yeah. We may be discussing <laughs> that fallback plan. Right. Um so beyond that, you and Chris went your separate ways in terms of, you know, Chris went to work uh for Green Day and uh Jingletown and mm-hmm. developed that whole world yeah. for himself. What at what point did you start to make your exit out of Newtone? Uh, probably around the same time. Uh, like I said, I was a, a little, it was a little slower for me. Um, I, I'm trying to remember years here, but this is probably between like 2003 and 2005 when we kind of started, you know, moving away from Newtone a little bit. We, we both started doing some work with Green Day and then Chris started doing a lot of work with Green Day and, uh, became a full-time thing for him. I was shortly after that, probably, I guess, 2006, I had my first kid. You know, the, the thought of working for myself at Newtone and scraping by was starting to get a little scary. And times were kind of tough around that time for recording. Uh, budgets were disappearing. So I started like looking for work. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I've never done anything else with my life, really. You know, I, I looked at being a meter maid here in Lafayette. You know, like, I didn't know. I had no idea what I was going to do. I was going to work at McDonald's. I don't know. Chris had mentioned to me, hey, these guys that we kind of knew somehow are built this crazy studio in San Francisco and we should go check it out. They're having a party. We went and it was crazy. You know, it was like, what is this crazy studio that someone built with a lot of money and had no idea. And, you know, a few months later, I got a call from someone said, hey, those guys are looking for an engineer. And I was like, well, I'm kind of looking for a job. You know, let me check it out. And that was Talking House Productions. And I ended up doing some freelance work for them. And a few months later, they hired me as a staff engineer for their private production company. I mean, yeah. what are the odds? Yeah, it was pretty bizarre. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I figured at that point, recording was going to go back to being a, a total hobby for me. And not only that, but, okay, so if you're, you're talking about around 2006, 2007? Yeah, I think so, yeah. 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 So right as the economy in the U.S. started to tank, yeah, you landed a job. Uh-huh. As an engineer. As a recording as an, engineer. As a recording engineer at a studio. In, like, the coolest studio in town. Yeah, yeah that this is a past life coming yeah, back to right. grant you some wish. Yeah, it was pretty bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that, that that business was pretty bizarre, too. The whole thing was just kind of like, what? You know, I just walked in every day waiting for someone to be like, it's over, go home. <laughs> the whole time I was working for that company, it was just crazy. You know, it was fun. 
Yeah. So, and and for the listener, it was basically, you know, the view from the outside, from my perspective, mm-hmm. was is was that here was this gentleman who built this incredible studio, mm-hmm. um, was running a record label, correct, and didn't appear to be making any money, correct, and bands were f- coming in, flocking to there because it was like an opportunity, yeah, and. I got to be honest with you, like I said, from the outside, I kept shaking my head going, this is not going to last. That's impossible. Yeah. At some point, somebody's going to go, okay, we're losing too much money. It's time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember when I took the job, I I was telling my dad about it. He said, what, what are they doing? And I explained the whole thing to him. And he goes, how long do you think this is going to last? And I said, I give it a year tops. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just, it was such a crazy idea. And it was a cool idea, you know, and the owner was, you know, willing to put the money into it and give it a shot. And sure. um, there was some unique visions behind it and stuff. And ultimately, it didn't work out, of course. But, uh, but it did go on longer for a year. It did, yes. It went on, uh, I want to say four years, maybe. Yeah. And yeah, th- there was no serious money ever made. It was, you know, it was definitely a losing venture all around. Um, but it, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was Absolutely yeah. gorgeous place. Beautiful studio, yeah. So, uh, and and listeners, it's it's got three control rooms. It's got a main control room with an SSL nine thousand, nine thousand K, yeah. It's got a another control room with uh, an API sixteen oh four, yeah, yeah, sixteen oh eight, yeah, sixteen oh eight, yeah. And then a uh, another room with uh, uh, an icon, mm-hmm. uh, and all surrounding a live room, one live room. And then some various ISO booths spread out. Yeah, there's kind of associated ISO booths with each control room. Yeah. Beautiful backyard area, like mm-hmm. patio area. Yeah, Beautiful. unheard of in San Francisco. Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beautiful apartment attached yeah. to it. Right. Um, just well done. Yeah, fit, it's very— Fit and finish just looked fantastic. Yeah, it's very beautiful space. So um, then what happened? Um, so, yeah, I— the, I'm trying to guess what year this is. So 2010, I guess, around then. You know, I, that day came when I walked in and uh, my my boss, John Paulson, said, I got bad news. Uh, it's the last day. We're done. The plug's being pulled or, you know, whatever he said exactly. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I went out to Newtone that night and started working on a new record with a punk band, you know, like just figured this is what I'm going to go back to now. and. Uh, a couple of the people that were involved with that business started kind of talking internally and said, hey, what if we figured out a way to make some money in this place? Maybe maybe Steve, the owner, would, you know, consider not selling the building if we could, you know, at least break even or something so he wasn't losing any money. And that that went through a few months of talks and stuff. Um, but eventually, myself, uh, Justin Lieberman, who was the other engineer, and Cindy McSherry, who was kind of the, you know, the the business manager took the place over. We, we proposed to offer to Steve to, hey, we think we can keep you from losing any money on this place. You know, that we, we can't, we're not promising we're going to make a ton of money or anything like that, but we think we can pay ourselves and, and make you break even at least. And so it kind of went from there. And it, same kind of thing. We didn't know how long it was going to last. And it was pretty, you know, looking at the numbers that we were proposing to bring in and revenue was frightening. It was like, that's a lot of money to be making in a studio. And we did it. It took a few years to kind of ramp up to it. We we had a lot of financial uh, guidance and business guidance from a friend of Steve's, uh, which was huge. I learned 
so much about business and, uh, and what financials. Can you, and can you share any highlights of that? That really other studio owners that don't normally have I mean exposure it, to that level of financial guidance. I I can say a couple things for me were um, having a very detailed plan that I to me was ridiculous at the time. I was like, it's a studio, man. It's a you know. One month's good, one month's bad. It's the it's the flow of of this business, and they're like, no, we want to know how much money you're going to make next month, and let's set a goal. If we're under, we got to readjust this and that. And in a broad sense, that was you know it was just making a plan and trying to stick to it, and you know watching expenses and uh, like I said, just having a goal. When you said detail, I mean like how detailed are we talking? Uh, extremely detailed. Like how how much revenue is going to come from jazz? How much revenue is going to come from? post-production, uh, voiceover, ISDN work. Like, I mean, it really, like, it, it was very detailed. It's to, like, let's set some goals and some expectations of what we think we're going to do here. Um, were the expenses laid out in that plan everything. as well? Oh, yeah, everything. Like, yeah, Down to the toilet paper? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was really a very detailed plan. And I had never, my background with Chris at Newtone was, like, throwing some cash in the pot at the end of the month and paying the rent and whatever, you know, like I, I never thought of anything like that in my life. So has that experience changed you in a, in a, in a way that you, th- you feel more, maybe a little more confident, a little more savvy with any future endeavors? Y- yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel more aware at least, you know, it's, it's, it's all the kind of stuff that's like floating in your mind all the time, mm-hmm. I think as, as a business owner. Um, but getting it out on paper and uh, having other people look over it and stuff like that was really huge. So yeah, I, I learned a lot, and yeah, I think it's changed me somewhat. I feel a little smarter. <laughs> it was kind of like going to grad school, I, in a way, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So, yeah. So then what? The business just grew from there, and it, it did more than we expected. You know, we're six years in now. And like beating all revenue, you know, that we thought we would beat. It's really great. Were there monthly or quarterly meetings with quarterly? Yeah, Steve we would meet. and his advisors. Yeah, Steve wasn't too involved directly, but his advisor would come and meet with us. Um, and again, you know, very helpful. He, he was very smart and or uh, uh, encouraging. And like, hey, what if we looked into doing this? And you know, you guys have all this space you're not using in the apartment and the gallery. Like, what if we held these events here and it's a huge part of our income now is doing events. We just rent the space out for events and it's separate from the studio. It doesn't interfere with sessions at all. It's amazing. It's, you know, it's having someone there to kind of look at things that we didn't think of because we're studio people. It, you know, that kind of thing was just huge. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's not a huge part of our income, but it, it's, it's big, you know, it's, it, yeah. Obviously it matters to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, and the you know the post production thing. Cindy, our our manager, uh, her background is in post. Um, she's from you know Russian Hill and uh, Crescendo. Oh, okay. Yeah, so she always pushed from that, and Steve's advisor pushed for that too when he saw the kind of money that came from post production work. So, uh, you know, Justin and I were had no interest. Like, I don't want to be recording a voiceover. I want to be recording a punk band. But when I saw the money again, it's like, okay, I could do this for a couple hours a day and basically subsidize all the indie bands I want to record off of a very small amount of work in post, you know? So, wow. yeah. So there are a lot of eye opening things for me in, in 
the past six years at Trilogy. The transition from it being a record company to it being a, a full-on commercially available studio, did you take a hit in salary? Um, I, I'm trying to remember. I, I think I did or stayed about the same okay, right, okay. right at that time. We, we, what we set the place up for when we started was we had base salaries and kind of a bonus thing. So if we hit the numbers we were projecting, we would, that would bring us up to our desired salary, basically. And if we didn't, we got a really slim paycheck that month. And we were all on kind of different levels. I took the biggest risk going in, just like, let's go for it. I'll take a really small salary, and I think we can do this. And we all took a risk, though. And, and there were a couple months that were the paycheck was very small, and it was scary, you know, um, especially I had two kids at that point. I'd had my second kid. So, uh, yeah, it was a little frightening for the first year. And maybe this is easy for you to see now in retrospect, but, I mean, having Justin and Cindy and this advisor, it, having this team working together for a yeah. common goal has got to be a lot more comforting than just, I mean, when I ran my studio, I mean, it really it's just was you. just me. Yeah. And it was beyond scary. Yeah. Yeah, I know that. I mean, that, like I said, the, the kind of end of the Newtone era was like that for me. I was kind of the, the one guy left, you know? You know scary. Yeah, not probably not on your level because I didn't have huge rent or anything. Or a family at that point. Right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> yeah. Things have changed. Things have changed, yeah. You sent me a Facebook message last night. And uh, so what's the change? Uh, the change is that uh, Steve, the owner of, of our building, has decided to sell the building. And when we say sell the building, yeah, that's complicated. It's very complicated. Extremely complicated. We're not talking yeah. about an empty shell of a building. No, this building has some crazy you know, infrastructure to it. Like, you know, the studio's built down. They dug down 10 feet or something. You know, I mean, it's, it's a properly built studio. There's floating concrete floors, all of that stuff. They, you know, cinder block walls. So it's it's not an empty building, yeah. And uh, there's some interesting zoning there that you can't put office spaces in, for example. So it makes it not the most desirable piece of real estate in San Francisco for what a lot of people are wanting to do in San Francisco. Which, for the outsider, is pretty much condos or... or office space. Office or, space. Yeah, right. Yeah, so um, it was obviously a shock to us. You know, we were here we are trucking along and doing really well, and uh, we, we got the... The word that, you know, he's Steve's kind of simplifying his life. He's getting older and maybe closer to retirement age, I would guess. And uh, he's just getting rid of stuff. Um, so he made us a very nice offer if we want to buy the building, which it's San Francisco real estate. So it's a little <laughs> out of reach for us. Um, but, you know, we've got a lot of irons in the fire. We're, we're trying to find some kind of a, a partnership with somebody or, uh, you know, a, another Steve type person who might be interested in owning the space. So, yeah, I mean really almost buying a turnkey operation. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, the the studio it, at the same time that we are looking for this angel investor, I guess you would call it or something like that or partner, mm -hmm. the studio is being marketed by a normal commercial broker. So there's people coming in to look at it occasionally um, who probably have no interest in keeping it as a studio. Uh, so it's kind of a, a little bit of a race against time, you know, to see who finds the the person first. But we still feel pretty confident that we'll we'll make something happen with it. Um, this could really take two very different paths. Yeah. The, the, obviously, the, the, dark, the dark path would be that somebody buys it, kicks you guys out, 
guts the studio, when they buy the building, do they get all the gear? Uh, I think that the words that I have heard is everything's negotiable. So I think there's a price on the building and the gear is negotiable after that. Um, And, you know, we're talking about a a six plus million dollar building and maybe a half a million dollars worth of gear at this point. So the gear is not a big factor. I don't think in, it is to me, of course, because I'm a recording engineer, but you know, to the average person getting involved, it's, it's nothing. The other path is that somebody comes in and basically, as we said, buys the building, turnkey, just keeps the operation going. Yeah. And so if there's somebody out there listening who might be interested. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Give us a call. The, yeah. There's <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's a scenario too that someone might come in and buy the building turnkey and kick us out and do their own thing. That's totally possible as well. You know, you might get a wealthy musician or whatever, you know, the, the weekend warrior tech guy. Who wants to record his band? Who knows? It has Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it, there's a lot of scenarios. But um, have you thought through a contingency plan for yourself? Not too much. No. I mean, I we're still we're still doing business. We're still, you know, I've got a session today, got a session tomorrow, and uh, we're we're still doing really well. So we're gonna keep doing this until we can't. And in the meantime, like I said, we're looking for all these options of to keep us in the place. Um, and obviously it would be great if we got some kind of ownership in the property in the process. Um, so let me throw a scenario out to you. Let's yeah. say that somebody buys a building and kicks you guys out. Right. What's your gut reaction to that in terms of what you would do? What I would do with my life at that point? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I don't, I'll never stop engineering. I know that the likelihood of me continuing to make a living engineering at this point, if I wasn't there or probably slim mm-hmm. uh would probably turn back into more of a hobby and i'd have to figure out somewhere else to make some money you know I'd, I'd probably go back and do some work at new tone here and there i still love it it's like i'll never stop doing it i'm sure that but yeah I don't, it's it's hard to imagine now with three kids and going down and pay um yeah i'm you know i'm kind of i'm at, at the bottom of where i can be money wise it with our lifestyle and where we live so I don't know. Um, I've got family in real estate. I, you know, maybe study and take the test for that. And Have you thought about opening another studio with the same team? We talked about it. Yeah, it's been discussed. Um, or taking over an existing studio. Yeah, with the I team? mean, we've talked about that, and it's the tricky thing is for us if we wanted to continue as we are, you know, with the kind of business we've been doing, we need to stay in San Francisco because of the post production work. We're we're already kind of on the limit of how far outside of downtown these people will travel for a session. Um, so, you know, and we're in south of market, so it's not that far. It's a quick cab ride. Uh, we feel like if we go much farther, we'll lose the post business. Um, right. So, and that's a, you know, it's a significant part of our revenue. It's music's still our main thing, but um, post is huge. So we have to stay in San Francisco and that really makes things difficult as far as finding an affordable space. Um because really, to do your business effectively, you kind of have to own the building at this point in I think San Francisco. So. I think so. I think anywhere, really. I mean, that's I've always felt that's the key. I've unfortunately never been in a position to own the building that I was in, but um, I think that's the key of recording studio ownership or uh, management or whatever. You know, this business is if you can own the property, it's all. That's everything, right? There. You heard that's, the Jeremy Goody episode. Yeah, he was just talking about the same thing. Yeah, that's your retirement plan. Like that's if you can, you know, get by and pay yourself for twenty years recording music, and you decide to throw in the hat one day. 
sell the building. You sell the building and it's everything's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, being in that position would be great, of course. And in San Francisco, it's I think it's almost crazy not to. I mean, it, the kind of rents you're gonna be paying, it's like you just gotta figure out a way to buy the property. Also, you take a big risk in renting a building because you build out any kind of infrastructure. Right. It's, and it's got a short lifespan. Yeah. For us too, you know, we, we would obviously want to keep up some of the uh the standard of trilogy, which would be some pretty high building costs. You know, I I don't I think we could do it much cheaper than they did it, but uh and just so the listener knows, I mean, this studio is built to the hilt. I mean, there's yeah. a, there's an air conditioned machine room that is there's just seven. A, it's a piece of work in itself. Yeah, there's seven industrial air conditioners on the roof. Like, I mean, it's it's incredible. Yeah, it's so. If you were to do it again, do you think you could do it leaner and meaner? I think so. Yeah, I, th- I think we all feel that way. Uh, the three of us all feel that way, and uh, I definitely do. Coming from my background of me and Chris with a couple a of hammers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, like I said, that some of the. Uh, you know, the aesthetic has to be maintained because that's why we get a lot of the work we do. It's, it's a beautiful space. Okay, so aesthetic aside, yeah. let's, talk, let's talk gear. Yeah. What could you reduce in that scenario so that if somebody's listening and, they, and they're in, either in a similar situation or they're thinking about building a studio, let's take it from that perspective. If yeah. you're building a new place and you and Justin and Cindy could go for this again in a... In a reduced manner from right. a gear perspective, where do you think it makes the most sense to shift? I, I don't know that I would shift much gear wise. Like I don't, I, I'm, we like our gear selection, you know, we don't have a ton of gear, but we have some pretty nice gear, some pretty nice mics. Do you um, think an SSL is crucial to your business? Yeah. We actually were in the, the day that we found out that the studio was going out for sale, we were about to propose buying another SSL because our SSL room is booked solid. Huh. So it's, I mean, we have, a 9,000 K that's in immaculate condition. It's, you know, it's, there's not, there's different furs got an SSL. Um, that's a 4,000. That's a 4,000. Does anyone else in San Francisco even have an SSL at this point? Are like, there any? Uh, Mo- Motor has one maybe? There's one, in, there's a, in there a guy over at uh, Hyde Street booking one of those rooms. He's gone, I think. Oh. I, I thought I heard that it was a J, I think. I don't think he's there anymore, but what, I could be wrong. What's the different fur one? That's a, 4,000 EG, I think. Okay. Yeah. Nice console, you know. But yeah, so there's not a lot of competition. If, if you want to work on an SSL, it's only a couple places you can go in San Francisco. In San Francisco. You'd have to go to yeah. Berkeley otherwise. Yeah, Fantasy, uh, Town. Um, not too many out there anymore either. So Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so that room is booked. Do you think it's booked solid because of the SSL? I think it's book solid because of the SSL and it's just a great room. It's a really nice sounding control room. It was built really well. Has a nice selection of outboard gear and uh it's what so what are the key components of that studio either combinations of gear or aesthetic or like, you know, the SSL brings in a certain amount of business. Uh the pianos bring in a certain mm-hmm. amount of business. Of course, yeah. It's I think Jeremy was talking about that too. You have an acoustic piano, you get a lot of work because you have an acoustic piano. We have two. <clears throat> and one is a you know pretty well known piano that you oh, yeah, yeah. yeah had before, yeah I think I mean our location we're in a great neighborhood in San Francisco we're right off the freeway, and again I mean I the the beauty of the studio and we I think we were smart we designed a really nice looking website and uh, made sure we ranked really well on uh, you know Google searches and stuff and when a big artist is in town and they search for a studio in San Francisco 
we're kind of it. Like, you really and that's are. not to take anything away from all, there's tons of other great studios. Yeah, Francisco, I mean, there is, but Hyde Street still exists, but, you know. Lady Gaga's not going to go Lady Gaga's not going to yeah. go down in that neighborhood. Exactly, yeah. So, it's, you know, and I, we send people to the, to a different fur and Hyde Street and stuff all the time and say, hey, you can get a better deal over at these places and these are great studios. Yeah. Like, you're an indie band. Different fur, definitely. Yeah, go to these places. Like, we, we support those businesses 100%. Um, you know, and partially because we get a lot of work that they can't get. Um, so. And you deal in some yeah. high-end clients. I mean, you. I, we do, yeah. You deal in people like Lady Gaga. Yeah. Al Gore has been there. Yeah. Doing voiceovers, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, that that kind of right it's, there gives we're you. We're kind of, yeah, like I said, we're the place. If if a, a Gaga or a Bieber's in town, like, we're the place that they're going to go probably. So, I guess to get back to what we're talking about, we feel like, you know, to build a new place, we have to maintain the ability to pull that stuff in because that's kind of our our so, thing. So in what areas could you be more lean and mean that you were referring to? Less space. We don't I think we have eight thousand plus square feet there. We don't need all that. We have, you know, this whole upstairs office space that we don't really, you know, we we rent out a little bit of it to some some friends and uh I have a desk that just piles junk on it, you know, that kind of thing. Cindy needs an office, but it can be much smaller. Uh that kind of stuff. Um we have that huge gallery space that we use for the events, but you know, at the same time, if we if we got in a situation where our rent was lower or something like that, we wouldn't have to do the events. Yeah, maybe just streamlining back down to just the studio side of things a little bit. Hope you're enjoying the interview here with Willie Samuels here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's take a sponsor break with our friends at Audio Technica, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about one of their microphones. I'm talking about the AT4047. Now, the good thing about having Audio-Technica as a sponsor is they send us microphones to check out and just kind of get an idea of what the line is like. Because while I have experience with many of their mics and, of course, headphones, I don't know all the mics. And the 4047 really, I got to say, it surprised me. We have some samples up on the site. On If you look under bonus content, that's right, it's on the right-hand side of the Working Class Audio page. We did some uh, samples uh, with Nina Michella over at Bird and Egg Studios uh, here in the Bay Area. And I got to say, it really shocked me at what a good performer it is uh, as an overhead mic for drums. On uh, We tried it on bass guitar amp. We tried it on piano. We uh, tried it out on guitar amps, uh, acoustic guitar, vocals. And it's pretty slamming, I got to say. Uh, looks like... It can be had. I'm checking out online. Looks like the average price is $6.99. It's a basic uh, silver matte finish. Uh, it's cardioid, and it's got a, um, a switchable 80 hertz high-pass filter and a 10 dB pad. Comes with a shock mount. What what else is there to say? It it really sounds good. And if you're looking for a good overall microphone uh, to use in your studio and you're kind of limited on dollars, you know, maybe you want to save up a little past that three, $400 mark, go up a little higher. Uh, I would recommend this. The AT4047 is, is pretty slamming. Uh, good bang for the buck. That's for sure. So head on over to uh, audio-technica.com. You can check it out for yourself and obviously stop by the Working Class Audio website to the bonus content, download the samples, judge for yourself. You can take my word for it, but you know, we all hear slightly differently. So my recommendation, of course, is to 
make the decision on yourself, taking all the information and you decide. So there it is, the 4047 from Audio-Technica. All right, let's uh, jump back into it with Willie Samuels here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Just kind of looking back over the, the last six or so years, or be, even beyond that, uh, your time at Talking House, your time at, at Studio Trilogy. Yeah. What have you really learned? Like, some, What are some key things that stick out as far as whether it's business or recording or i mean uh, there's you you probably have you know logged some really logged a lot of hours number one and mm-hmm. number two i think you, you've probably had a few realizations over the years yeah yeah i mean i the big shift for me in going from new tone and recording punk rock bands and then into talking house and the the oddness of that and then trilogy um aside from the business stuff the big thing for me was it kind of went from being i was the guy to i'm a part of something you know like in in both i guess the business and the in the recording sense like i at newtone i was kind of i never called myself a producer but i was by default the producer like i was the guy there doing everything for the band mm-hmm. um i was making the coffee i was you know, helping them with their songs, whatever it was, you know. And then now I've, I've become much more of the traditional engineer. I assist a lot. I never assisted anybody before that. And I, it's definitely, it's opened my eyes to like, I, I've, I think I've learned how to keep my mouth shut a lot better, <laughs> which I think I was pretty good at even before. But it's, yeah, it's just taught me how to stay out of the way a little more and uh, kind of be a, a passenger on, on <laughs> in sessions. While still doing my job, of course, but uh, yeah, it's been a definitely a different perspective of the the business and getting involved in post production again, like totally eye opening. Of like, wow, that's what that world is like. I had no idea. It's crazy, you know. There's so much money being thrown around and wasted, and unbelievable. Yeah. So that and the same with uh, you know big. I didn't never did a lot of major label stuff. Same kind of thing. You just coming from a kind of do it yourself punk rock background. It's like eye-opening to see how inefficient people are in the studio and how much money and time is wasted. And that's, it was, it's interesting to me. It's still interesting to me to see that stuff. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, we do, we do a fair amount of like kind of big major label rap hip hop stuff. And those guys usually don't show up for their sessions. They, I bet 80% of the sessions they book, no one shows up. What? Yeah. It's crazy. It's, I mean, I had no idea until I was in that position of sitting on a couch all night waiting for someone to show up and they never come. Yeah, okay. I, I'm dumbfounded. Right, it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's just unbelievable. So it's booked. It's booked. We get a deposit. We've learned to get a deposit up front. Um, I think Cindy might even get the full amount sometimes. You know, depending on what it is. But uh, yeah, it's booked. They usually, you know, they we we get these sessions of people that are in town for a show, and uh, okay. they want to book a studio after the show, come in, work on whatever, maybe just hang out and party. That happens sometimes. That's fine. Whatever. Um, but yeah, so the, these sessions are usually booked to start at maybe midnight or something and go until the morning. And yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times I've just sat there overnight, sitting on the couch waiting for the doorbell. And uh, and do nothing. you literally stay there all night? It depends. If if I have no communication, I'll usually split after a few hours. Um, you know, if no one's responding to texts, the 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 manager or whoever, you know, label contact has gone to sleep. I I'll split. Yeah. Um, but I've had a few times too where I'm about to walk out the door and the tour bus rolls up and everyone comes in, you know? So it's, yeah, it's crazy sessions. Wow. Yeah. And 
in the situations where they don't show up, yeah, what's the aftermath of that for your side or their side? There's usually a, a small struggle to not pay, and uh, it's yeah, they pay. Cindy makes sure they pay. She's good. So um, it's yeah, we don't even worry about it anymore. It's, I, I think we've only been stiffed once or twice, and I think even eventually got paid on those sessions. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, what about, what have you, you learned from Cindy and Justin over the years? A lot. I mean, uh, you know, Justin came from a slightly different background than I did. He, he took the traditional assisting path, um, intern, assistant, uh, and moved his way up. And, um, so he had a lot of that knowledge that I didn't have that I've learned now from him and from the trilogy experience. And, you know, he, from the get go, he was, he's Justin's even more relaxed and uh, reserved than I am. And uh, was really good at just keeping his mouth shut and uh, getting the job done. He's just a smart guy. You know, I've just, I've learned a lot from him, definitely. And Cindy is, you know, a lifetime studio manager. She's, she's one of those people that you hear about. It's just like amazing how she can run a business, especially a studio, which is a crazy business to run and getting paid and you know, all that. And um, yeah, just watching her, she's a hard ass and she's, She's a nice person, but she could scare you a little bit, you know? Like she's yeah. a smart business lady who she will is, kick your yeah. ass. She will kick your ass big time. If um, if if you and it's, go the wrong in, direction. In all in all levels of everything. I mean, the way she handles our interns and it, she's just on top of it and doesn't let shit slide by at all. You know? She's a pro. She's totally like the most pro person I've ever worked with, probably in the studio business. Yeah. Does that influence you as an engineer to see somebody run a studio in that capacity? It does. Um, I mean, I my my approach to sessions has changed a lot um, because of Cindy and somewhat Justin. Um, I'm, I've always been kind of a all in guy. Like, how much money you guys have to make the record? Let's get it done. And Cindy's like, no, you're, you're giving away a lot of free time. Like, what are you doing? And uh, you know, we've made some compromises on that because I still like to work that way. But I see her side of it of like, why why am I? You know, if if you look at it like let's say you're working for a hundred bucks an hour. Well, now I'm actually really working for 50 bucks an hour because I'm probably kicking in half this time for free. So it's, yeah, it's, I've learned a lot about that and, you know, kind of good ways to get around those awkward conversations. Yeah. And that's great too. Having a studio manager for that stuff. Like, I mean, that was, it's amazing to me being able to talk to a client and go, okay, cool. Talk to Cindy and you guys can work out a rate and I don't have to deal with that. I mean, I do deal with it sometimes because Justin and I are co-managers too, but um, it's really nice having someone else do the, the money talk, you know. Does she do any sessions though? No, she's not an engineer at all. Okay. No. Yeah. So it's nice for her. She just has to yeah. negotiate the business, keep the yeah. operation kind of yeah. floating from a business perspective and leave the, the daily grind up to, well, I mean, you each, you and Justin have your own grind. Yeah. Cindy has her own grind. Oh, definitely. Let's not. Yeah. Let's yeah. not you know, forget that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, on top of that, like I said, we, the, our, you know, financials and stuff for the studio have been extremely detailed from day one. So she spends a lot of time looking at spreadsheets and putting together spreadsheets on top of just the normal studio grind. So that takes a very particular personality. Yeah. I, I don't think she enjoys doing it, but we've all learned that it's important and it's helpful to the business and it's required of us by, you know, the owner. So yeah, you know, it's a great thing that we've all learned how to do. And Cindy especially has really learned a lot about it, I think. You know, that it, it's great, yeah. Oh, I have to have a conversation with Cindy because... Yeah. 
uh, I'm sure she could teach a master class in studio management. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, I like I said, I would put her on the level with those, you know, uh, Candace and Rose and you know all those. All the classics, the classics. Yeah, she hasn't been around quite that long, but she's been around, you know, and uh, she gets it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, if you were to go back, let's let's say that you had to go back to Newtown. Yeah, and that was it. Right. You think you could really rock that place from a from a studio business perspective because of what you've learned? <laughs> uh, you know, I, Chris and I had that discussion at one point years ago. Like, could we? You know, we know a lot now, and we've been through a lot. And uh, I don't know. I you know, we actually moved to Newtone at one point to Oakland to Studio Eight Eighty, which is now Jingletown. We we up and moved everything in the studio into Studio B. And uh, wait. Yeah. We, so you take you took Newtone and moved into Studio B of Studio 880? Correct. So we got to a point with Newtone where we were doing really well. And we felt like we're out here in Pittsburgh and we're just battling that big time. We're in this old warehouse. If we were in a better location that was a little, you know, more aesthetically pleasing, um, we could kill it. You know, we'd, we're on fire right now. So we we worked out a deal with uh, John, the, the former owner of the studio there, John Lucchese, and uh, moved into Studio B. And listeners, Studio 880 became Jingletown when Green Day purchased it from John Lucchese. Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we we signed a lease for I think a year, and uh, we were paying, geez, uh, probably six times the amount of rent we were paying at Newtown or the original Newtown. Um, and within three months, we were broke. We were selling off gear to pay rent. It not only did business not increase, it dropped. Um, why? I don't know why. I think I think there's some charm to Newtone, the original Newtone. Um, I know now that the room is incredible. It's the best drum room I've ever worked in. Um, I don't know if that was a factor at that point, but um, we raised our rates very slightly. Like I think we went from $35 to $40 an hour um, and kind of stuck to our rates, which we weren't always doing in the original location because we didn't have to. Okay. Um, and it killed our business. Yeah. It like the... The coolness of Newtown was gone. So uh, we got, I don't know, six months into that. And we went to John. And we're like, man, we we got to go. Like, I know we're in a year lease, but we can't, we're out of money. We can't pay you any rent. And we're we're just scraping by here. Um, and I what ultimately got us out of the lease was the talking house guys that I ended up working for later came in and took over our lease because they were the talking house was being built at the time and they needed a studio to start working in. How small of a world is that? Yeah. You you've had a few like yeah. moments of yeah. magic happen in your life. I gotta say that's yeah. really awesome. Yeah. So your ass got saved. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And fortunately, we were smart enough to keep the original Newtone building because the rent was low. Um, we had a friend move in and was paying rent in there while we were gone. So we came back and moved everything back in. I, you know, I'm just I'm very fascinated by the dynamics and the possibilities of studio management ownership which was really spurred on by a conversation with John Champ at 25th Street. Right. John had said, you know, based on what he's learned, you know, just having a small studio, lean and mean, not a lot of overhead, being able to really rock that and, and, and I make think it can f- be done. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, the Newtone guys, Scott and Ben are doing it right now. Those, those guys, from what I can tell, are working around the clock. I mean, they, they're literally working in like 12-hour shifts, I think. Like, one works all day and one works all night. And, 
Yeah. In Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh. They're doing it. I mean, it, they rediscovered what, you know, Chris and I discovered the first time around. It's a great space. So for those in the Bay Area listening, if you've ever seen the Pittsburgh Bay Point BART train and wondered what's on the other end, Pittsburgh. We literally are. Yeah, we're right, you know, just down the street from the BART station there. Yeah. That's fascinating. I, I yeah. should talk to those guys. Yeah, I... I should talk to those guys. I don't get to catch up with them too often, but... Um, Could you make the introduction? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, they're nice guys. They're cool. Like, what is... So, once again, evaluating, what is it about Newtone? Why are those guys working around the clock? I think it's... Um, I think it's cheap rates. You know, I, I don't know what they're charging exactly, but it's it's cheap, I'm sure. Like, like well under $50 an hour. Okay. I'm sure. Yeah. It might even be in the 25 30 range. Okay. Like, um, just a guess, but, and that's about where Chris and I were at when we were there. Again, the room sounds amazing. I mean, it's just, it is really a great sounding drum room. Is that by hap happenstance or what? Uh, I think a mix. Chris and I spent a lot of time. We, you know, over the years we'd say, Hey, what if we built this wall and put it at a weird angle and let's tear that wall out. We were constantly doing construction and hanging different, you know, treatments on the walls and all DIY. We made it all ourselves and, uh, usually out of stuff we found in the trash and, you know, like we've just, we're constantly experimenting. Like, how can we make this room sound better? And it got to this point where there's a pair of room mics up that sit up on this kind of ledge up high in the room, plugged into a cheap ART preamp that were not touched for like 15 years. Like, you just came in and that was your room mics for the drums. And no one ever argued it because it was like, those sound amazing. Like, there's no better room sound for a rock drum kit. You might as well super glue the knobs. Yeah, exactly. It's that kind of a thing. So, um, it, yeah, it's, it, the building's got this old redwood ceiling and uh, it's just, there's something about it. It's magic. Well, real estate-wise, Pittsburgh is not, in. it's not enduring what San Francisco is. I wouldn't think so. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time out there these days, but I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure rents have gone up. Um, we, we actually just got our rent increased. Uh, I think, if I remember right, we got a somewhat apologetic letter from the property manager at Newtown saying, you know, I'm sorry, it's been a few years. We need to raise your rent. I think it went up like 20 bucks or something. Oh yeah. Like, God. I mean, it, it was really like that kind of, and it's a few times has been like that. When we, when I moved in there, I think when Chris moved in before me, I, I want to say the original rent was 250 bucks a month or something for 1500 plus square feet. So if you're renting yeah, and you want to, you want to have a studio and you have, and you're going to rent, Get get yourself into an area like a Pittsburgh that is, I guess, yeah, just not. I mean, it's out there. It's pretty far out. Yeah, if you're a Bay Area person, Pittsburgh is like out in the boonies. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of business we didn't get and don't get because of that. Um, but there's still there's a lot of people that travel from far away to go there. You know, out farther out in the Bay and stuff. Um, Do you think that? Um, I'm sorry, their names? Scott and Ben. Scott and Ben. Do you think uh, the business is a direct result of Scott and Ben's relationships? or? Are, yeah, yeah. I mean, I they probably, I think they've been inherited a few projects from Chris and I, but no, it's all their work um, and stuff they found themselves. And, uh, you know, I think that's probably the biggest thing is Chris and I were good engineers and good people. Um, and these guys are good engineers and good people. And they just, they attract work. Um, I wonder who their clients are. I think it's similar. You know, they kind of took over where Chris and I left off. It's the the kind of East Bay punk scene, really, I think is mostly what they're doing, um, which I'm sure has changed quite a bit over the years. I'm not really involved in it anymore. Yeah. Um, 
but I, I get the feeling that's the kind of stuff they're doing. We're almost out of time, yeah. but I want to I want to touch on uh, the family aspect. Um, you have three kids. I have three kids. How? What are their ages at this time? Uh, three, six, and almost ten. How have you balanced the work life thing? What have been some of the challenges? Um, People booking sessions and not showing up. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's it's really difficult. Um, it's uh, it, as trilogy has gotten busier. We've been able to hire an assistant, which is great, and uh, that's reduced my hours quite a bit. But up until then, which is a little over a year ago, you know, I was working most of my life. Really, I've 70, 80 hours a week. Like, yeah, I put in some time. Damn. And, um, it sucks. You know, I mean, it it doesn't suck in the sense that I love what I do, but it sucks that I've missed a lot of my kids growing up because of it. Um, it's, you know, I've missed a lot of baseball games and ballet performances and stuff like that. And you know how it is. It's, especially when you have your your own studio, like, you can't say no to any work and you can't change the session times. You can't leave an hour early to to go, you know, there's a little bit of a price to be paid there, I guess. Oh, I think there definitely is. Yeah, it's, I'm it's just not spoken about very often. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I, I've just never been in a, unfortunately, in a position where I could dictate anything like that. Like, hey, I'm I'm calling the session a couple hours early. I'm going to go home and, you know, have dinner with the family or whatever. Like, I, you know, I've always been in a, a struggling position as an engineer and, you know, studio business person of like, we got to take the session. We got to, we need the money. It's, yeah, so it's tough. But yeah, I, like I said, the past year or two, it's definitely lessened up a little. I'm more like a, you know, typical 40 or 50 hour a week person now. A little less work on the weekends and the late nights. Uh, so that's been nice. Um, but it's still, you know, it's still the same struggle of like just not having a very flexible schedule. It's, yeah, it's tough. So obviously, you know, you have a very understanding wife. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very supportive. It doesn't always feel that way, but obviously she is. Yeah, we're we're still together. Are we editing yeah. that out? No, no. It's, I mean, yeah, she's obviously very supportive, and uh, you know, I think we're both just very uh, grateful that I have this job. Like, does she? She doesn't work. She's a stay at home mom. Okay. Yeah. Um. She's she's just started uh, watching some other people's children. So we have our three children plus three other children in our house a few days a week. So yeah. she's busy. I mean. Saying she's a stay-at-home mom is like, you know, her job's way harder than mine. There's no doubt about that. I bet you her job's more stressful. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And and she doesn't have the typical husband home at 6 o'clock. Like, I can take my break now. You know, it's like there's nights that I'm not home till midnight and she's got to deal with all the bedtimes and everything. You know, making dinner and all that stuff. So, it's tough. She's almost doing... Cindy's job and your job at your house. Pretty much, yeah. It's you crazy. Know. Yeah. But again, like I said, I you know, I think we're we're both grateful that I have this job and and making decent money as an engineer, like incredible. If you know, if you told me 10, 15 years ago that I'd be making what I'm making right now, recording music, I would have laughed. Hmm. Yeah. Very cool. So, well, this this has been very insightful. Yeah. Um I appreciate you coming out. So thanks for yeah, being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it's a different, much different perspective. And just just a final thought. Just once again on on the sacrifice when you choose to do it at a particular level, you're going to take a hit in your time. It's going to take you away from from some things. So for the listener, for those that are kind of trying to figure out their 
plan of what they're going to do in the recording world because we have a ton of students that listen. Yeah. Choose wisely. Yeah. I've had that talk with, you know, we have an internship program and I, you know, I've had to tell a fair amount of people, like, I don't think this is for you. Like, you know, when you're looking at your watch and you want to get out of the studio and you're only six months into this, this is not the job for you. It's, it's time to find something else to do. Like you have, if you don't want to be here 24 seven at that age, it's, that's not it. That aspect of it. Cause there yeah. are, because for me, I've definitely adapted my world. Like I used to be gone all the time. I used to be trying, struggling, trying to keep a studio open. And yeah. now I don't have that. So I'm home all the time. Right. And I'm mixing and mastering here at home. And when I track, it's like, oh, field trip. Right. Time to go out to the studio. So right. I'm kind of a hybrid of you and your wife in some respects. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I also have one less child. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah, I, I look forward to the possibility of that maybe someday in the future where I'm more of a freelancer. And, yeah. uh, you know, there's that whole struggle, of course, of oh, hus- yeah. hustling. But um, it's not free of stress. Having a free schedule is, you know, or somewhat free schedule. I, I would love that, you know, being able to be around when I need to be. And yeah. So. Well, cool. Yeah. Thanks, Willie. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Mr. Willie Samuels here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great conversation. Be interesting to see what happens uh, with Willie and uh, all the crew over there at Studio Trilogy. So uh, until then, we'll wait to find out. But we got to thank everybody because we're out of time. So uh, we want to say thank you to Willie Samuels. We want to thank our friends, of course, Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams for their help on the show. We want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, and Audio Technica. And thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.